Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Thanks for checking out this feed of my favorite interviews and best guests over the last seven years. Whether it's your first time or you're already in a deep dive, make sure you head to billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com for the entire archive. You can sort by genre, year, and more to easily navigate all your favorite people. Again, that is billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. What if I told you you could get a big snack almost anywhere for less than five bucks? Let's talk 7-Eleven's $3 big meal deal with seven rewards. Big meal deal is a big bite hot dog and a large big gulp drink, and you won't find a better snack deal anywhere else. Here's what I put on my hot dog. Mustard. And that's it. That's it. I love a hot dog with mustard. Maybe if the chili, if I'm feeling it, if I'm feeling crazy, maybe a little chili, maybe a little nacho cheese, but I'm a hot dog and mustard guy. But if that sounds like your kind of bite, visit 7-Eleven, valid through 1725. 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, applicable on large, big gulp only, participating U.S. stores only. See app for full terms. All rights reserved. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. All right, I know I always say this. This guy was supposed to come on. This lady was supposed to come on. Wanted this person out for years. This is the all-time example of that. I've been badgering Michael Keaton, I think, since 2014. Birdman. I went to a Birdman screening. You were going to come on. You didn't understand what a podcast was. I was explaining it to you. I've run into you a bunch of times. Every time you feel bad, you're like, no, no, I'm going to come on. And now it's 2021. Here we are finally. We did it. We're doing a podcast. I'm so happy to see you. This is great. Me too. You too. By the way, I didn't feel that bad, really. Well, I was, I was, I was embellishing. I was, <laughs> I was building it up. Um, we should mention you have Dope Set coming out on Hulu. Right. You have Worth that's already on Netflix. But right. we're go- we're going backwards. Look, you've okay. done you've done a million interviews over the years. Yes. You've told the story about why you didn't do the third Batman a hundred times. You, yeah, I feel like you've done all of it. I want to yeah. go back to the '80s with you because okay. you're one of my guys. You know, I'm 13 when Night Shift comes out. I'm 13 right. when you start going on Letterman. Yeah. And you become one of my guys. Yeah. But what, right. I didn't know the backstory of it took you a while to get there. You, you're you on TV shows. You're on like Mary Tyler Moore Hour. You're yeah. doing stand-up. Can we go back to the late 70s as you're trying to break in during this crazy time when there's only really three TV networks and right. they're making 100 movies a year? And you're trying to break in. What do you remember all these years later about that? That's funny. I was thinking that the other day when people, 
the people used to say, you know, if I was in my house with my mom and dad or whatever you say, everything was on channel, no matter where you were. Yeah, there, he's on channel four. <laughs> right. And that was it. Because that was the network. Yeah. Yeah, I watched that show on channel four. Um, so what I remember, you know, which is a fair amount, thank God. Um, I'm not that far. Well, let me see. I'm downtown. I'm in New York right now. I'm trying to think of where the first place. I used to leave Pittsburgh in my 65 bug. I might have hitchhiked one time. I took a bus. I can't remember. And I would. Uh, I was getting ready to make my move here because I was, you know, I was working different jobs in Pittsburgh, and I was starting to write a little. And I did a. I was doing some plays, and I and I actually started doing a little stand up because uh, I was writing. I got really interested in writing comedy, and then I guy told me about a jazz club. So so I was doing that, but then I thought, well, I'm going to New York. I've decided to move to New York, um, and. Uh, so I would start to do auditions and I'd come all the way back and uh, a friend of mine used to let me crash uh, uh, right up, right like 10 blocks from here, uh, a three, three story walk up. Uh, and I would set up an audition or something and go see these people out of the blue. And then I'd have to drive my car. Back. I woke up one morning right over here and I kind of looked out the window and I went, Gee. I'm looking out the other side, and the, the apartment was this big. And, and I said, I'm almost positive I parked right down there. It was gone. My car was towed. <laughs> so every dollar I had went to getting it back, which was about, at that time, about 75 bucks. So I was doing that and, uh, and working at WQED in Pittsburgh just as a grip, kind of all-around guy, what you did. You just did all kinds of things. <clears throat> and I um, worked on Fred Rogers' show sometimes and did other things. And uh, there was a guy there, a very funny guy named Charlie Howe, who had written some stuff that was funny. And somebody had seen his stuff. And, and the guy was coming through Pittsburgh and recommended him to, to a show out in, uh, in L.A. And he got, and he got it. Uh, he got this job. And he, all of a sudden, he was a comedy writer for Norman Lear. So Charlie, I, I had sold him a couple of jokes. And he and I became friends. Really good guy. And he... Geez, I don't know. We didn't email, so I guess he he wrote me a note or called me or something, and he said, "You going to New York?" And I go, "Yeah, I'm getting ready here in about a month or something." And he goes, "What? You should come out to L.A. Give L.A. a try." Because the expression he used that stuck in my head was, "It's wide open out here," and I thought, "Wide open." And my friend I've known since I'm about nine was going to law school out there, and uh, yeah, literally I've known him since I think we're like ten. Uh, and, and, and he, and I, he let me stay with him for a while. He was back in Pittsburgh working for the summer and I stayed in his place with his brother and a bunch of guys. And, uh, but I just never left. And I started, and then I was doing everything, you know, doing anything you could do, parking cars, you know, trying to figure out, figure it out. I didn't even know how, how you went about it, except that I would go visit Charlie occasionally, but there's not he, anything he could do really, you know, I didn't have it. So uh, I'd start working in clubs among doing a bunch of other jobs and because uh, you, you didn't have to audition. You, know, you just had to sign up for for the opening night. First time I did stand-up was here in New York at the Improv and Catch a Rising Star. Me and Larry David. Uh, yeah, but you were a good stand-up. Like, that's like yeah, that part's been totally, <laughs> totally lost in the Michael Keaton history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see Did you see the Binder documentary, the Mike Binder documentary yeah. in the comments? It was well done, I thought. So I was doing that and then, and then, uh, you know, the next thing I know, uh, a guy named Norman Steinberg, still a good friend of mine, 
was writing uh, with Mel Brooks on stuff. And he was a friend of a friend of Pittsburgh. And he was generous, really generous guy. And he, he said, hey, I had like an extra part got me on. I had like two words or something. And, and, then, and then Charlie said, hey, you ought to come down. They're meeting guys about your age. It's just a meeting. So I went and they, the guys talked to me and they said, hold on a minute. And then went to the other room, came out and said, read this. And it was a scene. And I left and they said, you know, Charlie goes, hey, you got a job. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah, they liked you. And I go, okay. So I show up and I do this job, very frightened. And, and they, they, it worked. And they turned it into a two-parter. And then it just started happening for a while. And then it just died for like a year. <laughs> there was like nothing, you know, which was one of the best lessons because I went, oh. I see how this works. Yeah, this this is not a done deal just because you start to get a couple of gigs. You know, this is this is how this is going to be, which was but really you, good. You have a whole generation of people like Letterman does the same thing, right? He drives out there. Yeah, Billy Crystal, like it goes up yeah. down the line. All these people are just kind of going to L.A. in that seventy four to seventy eight range, trying to get TV writing gigs, anything they can get, just to kind of be around. Absolutely. It was, it was amazing when you think of it because, because I thought at the time, no one really does this. This is such an odd occupation to pursue that I, I thought writing would be fun. It would just be fun. I really wanted to act, but I'd love to stand up so much and I was getting good at it that I thought, well, let's just focus on that. And when I think about it, you're absolutely right. There was a group. Leno was kind of already like he was, you know, he had been established. He was such a young guy, but he, he was so polished, I remember. But Letterman and I showed up probably weeks apart, you know. I still remember the little house he lived in. I'd go over and there was a little park, a criminal park, we'd go play basketball. Um, and there was this whole, and, but it, when you think about it, there were like seven or eight people, maybe, you know, some New York guys had started moving out, you know, to work out there. Belzer had been working. I saw Richard Belzer here in New York and he, he already looked like a pro to me mm. and he's only a few years older than I. And, and so, yeah, there was this, and you think, well, what are the odds? And then now everybody does, there's a stand up club everywhere, you know, in shopping malls, there's, you know, there, it, like everybody is a stand up. It's weird. Right. Well, I didn't even know, you know, as we talked about, we only had three channels plus the local ones in, in yeah. Boston and you had a show which I saw on IMDb because I was like, I wonder if I missed anything from back then. And you had a show with Jim Belushi called yeah. Working Stiffs yeah. that I literally don't remember. I didn't know about. And the reason I didn't know about it because I, I researched it, it was head to head against the Ropers. And the oh, Ropers, that, right? that was the right. spinoff of Three's Company. I'm like, I'm right. in on the Ropers. I didn't even know what was on the other channels, but it was right. CBS. It didn't make it. And now you look back and it's like, wow, you... Young Michael Keaton, young Jim Belushi, yeah. um, sitcom. How did that not work? But that happened a million times back then. Yeah, all happened. And I could, can't tell you how relieved I was. that it. That really? It, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, I was so glad <laughs> you guys to be were, out of it. You guys were like custodians, right? Custodians. But the concept was kind of a good idea because they were trying to, it was a, there was a lot of physical stuff in the show. Mm. And, and it was, you know, I was pretty good physically and so they would so that always be there'd be a um, a set piece that was a physical thing and i think they must have watched laverne and shirley or something because i think laverne and shirley did something like that or the girls yeah. would have like a lucy type of thing you know right um and that, and so that was kind of the concept which actually was kind of a good idea but 
almost every time a show, and I was on three that got canceled, I think, uh, the Mary Tyler Moore thing, and, uh, uh, and although I really enjoyed that. I love I loved being there. I actually love showing up for work and all the things. I just never wanted to be, the thought of being in something for seven years just ugh, wasn't good. Then Murphy's when, Law was the other one. Yeah, Which, Report to Murphy. Report to Murphy. Yeah. That one seemed like a weird premise. It's a half hour, but you're a parole officer. I don't know what yeah. what was hilarious yeah, I think about that. that. Idea, I don't know. I, <laughs> you could always bring in a like criminal of the week or something. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, can't, can't believe it didn't make it. But then you have Night Shift, Ron Howard's first movie. Yeah, Henry yeah. Winkler is in it. He's still one of the biggest stars. He had just been the Fonz, so yeah. it had to be taken seriously. Yeah. Shelley Long's in it. She was either about to be on Cheers or just started on Cheers. I can't remember. Just and about then, to be, I think. And then that's your breakout and you kill it. And I, I think I'm probably 13. And it was like one of those first R-rated movies. I think I R-rated yeah. comedies where it's like, oh my God, this is like the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. Right. You're, 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 right. you're in a morgue, you're running a, running a call girl thing out of a morgue and it's yeah. fucking hilarious. And it's 40 years old. It still holds up. I still defend it. Wow. That's great. Brian Grazer, the, one of the producers who just got, was just getting started. Uh, found an article, saw that article. And uh, man, he was, you know, for, it was really a great move on his part. And he grabbed it, somehow got it and went to Ron Howard. And then they became friends. And of course, you know, formed Imagine. And uh, yeah, that's, that's where that came from. There was an article in, uh, I don't know if it was New Yorker or something where he found that and bought it or something, but you, you're at that age, 14, you know, when you're when you're a boy and you're like you start to hit that age, you know, like you just love comedy, and I, you know, you can't get enough. But then 15, 16, 17, all those ages, you were right in that that prime zone. Plus, it probably seemed like, ooh, they're doing bad things. They're saying right. words, you know, which is exciting. Well, and you, I mean, that Billy Blaze Jasky is like that was yeah. one of the iconic '80s characters, and then yes. it was clear, it was clear from that point on, good stuff's gonna happen. But then Letterman his show starts taking off that same year and you become, yeah. you go on there and you become one of the guys. Like he had, right. I was telling a uh, nephew Kyle who produces this, like before you came on, like there was this crew that he had and it was all of these people that became some of the biggest stars in the world. And they yeah. were kind of his crew. It was like Seinfeld, yeah. Leno, um, yeah. you, Tom Hanks, Eddie Murphy, yeah. cause SNL was right there. And yeah. it was all like these early stages of all those guys, but you would come on, you would crush and you had such a good, repertoire with him well you know you know there was he when he started i think he'd bear me out on this uh, he, he was like a lot of the the late night hosts and they're they're so different now but he was he really wanted to know like on carson i only did carson one time and i i just did, went on as a guest and i was really glad that i could do it because it was i think he had about 10 more shows to go or something i don't know um they wanted to know what you were going to do. What are you going to say? What's the setup? What's the thing? And Dave will tell you, he was, he wanted, he didn't want any surprise because it, if it gets uncomfortable or goes south, then the show's done. And he yeah. really wanted to know. And so you kind of had to toe the line or you kind of had to, you know, uh, not play along, but, you know, do that. And then there comes a point where he goes, Nah, these are the guys that I trust because they're never going to take me too far off. Even if something doesn't work, you know, um, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll end up okay. And, and so then it got really relaxing, really comfortable. The guys now all seem 
easier about it. They they can roll. They really roll quite easily. All of them. You know, they're just very they're very facile. Well, the interesting thing about back then is you go on that show, and then it's just gone. Yeah, you're on it, and then there's the record of it. Now you go on. And any sort of anything could end up being on social media the next day or it lives on in YouTube for the next hundred years. Yes. You didn't know that in 1983. No, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I didn't think of that. It's true. <laughs> you could have some deranged appearance or you could have the funniest yeah. thing ever and it just was like gone. Or they'll pick one thing and play yeah. it over in something, you know, which is always nerve wracking. Yeah. And you I, know, it's tricky because now at the same time, you have to be really careful, but simultaneously... Just let it, let it go. You know what I mean? And go, I don't know, man, I'm just going to be me. And, we'll, you know, I trust my instincts, but you know, whatever, it doesn't always work, but there's, they're so good about it now. I said, most of these guys I noticed, they, they can pick it up and they can, plus they edit now, right. you know, you know, so if you oh, go yeah. on, like sometimes I'll go on and they'll keep me on and we'll keep goofing around on and on. My segment will be this long, but they have to cut it down, you know, to fit, fit the spot. So night shift hits. Yeah. You become a thing. What happens to you? You buy a house? Like what what like what are the next couple months look like? You grabbing rolls, people are throwing uh, parts at you. What is it? What is it like? Yeah, you know, you know, the, a lot of stuff is coming my way. Uh I remember a really uncomfortable meeting uh at Warner Brothers. Uh that and I guys will under uh, my peers or or whomever or anyone actually actors or funny people will under, understand this. And, uh, I had this, go out to Warner Brothers, the, the executives want to meet you. You know, you're going to have a meeting. I'm going, okay, what is it for? And they said, they just want to get to know you. They want to know you. And, uh, and they, were, they were good guys. Uh, they were all very young at the time. Uh, uh, I liked them. I didn't really know them, really. But they weren't that much older than I was, really. They were pretty young, you know. And, uh, but, I mean, older than I, but, uh, you know, by maybe seven years or so. And uh, I remember walking in the room thinking, I don't know what this is for. And and they were like goofing around and like, it was kind of fratty, you know, and it was kind of like, like I could tell, oh, I'm there to entertain them. I'm like to be, I'm the, I'm the wild guy, you know, I'm the goofy guy and, and he's funny. We're going to sit in the room and I've felt so uncomfortable. Uh. I didn't know how to, how to be, you know, like I, I can't be on, you know, and I like, you know what I mean? Unless something comes up and you just go off on something. So they thought you were fun. like Robin Williams. Yeah, like come yeah. in, wind them up, and go. Yeah, it was it was un, it was uncomfortable. And truthfully, that 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 night shift guy, I, I don't. I only do it if I go. What's the truth? You know, I, I I always approach things as the character. You know, the guy. Not not that I wouldn't say, there, here's an opening to do something really funny, and I would improvise something really funny, or I find hopefully really funny, or I find a way to, to do a thing that I knew would be funny, but it always came from a perspective of who's the character. Play, stay true to who the person is, always. Well, that character from Night Shift was so indelible. People, they didn't have a history with you. They just assumed that was you. And then you right. do Mr. Mom and it's like, oh, oh, so he's actually a real actor. I yeah. didn't know. You might To me, you might have just been Billy Blaze in the next 20 movies you made. You know, I had well, no idea. Was, that was what that was what I feared, you know. That was what I I feared, but I thought, yeah, yeah you know, maybe 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 you got to do something. Uh, you got to guard against that. You got to set it up at least. And you know, what's the worst thing that happens is that you only get hired for that kind of guy. You knock off a couple of few years, you know, you make some dough, and you move on to the next thing. I mean, it wouldn't have been the end of the world, but I really didn't want that to happen. 
I really, and I remember getting this thing from this guy, John Hughes, Mr. Oh, Mom, yeah. and no one had heard of John Hughes. I mean, there was, there were probably people out there who had read some stuff that he was writing. He's an advertising guy in Chicago. And, um, you know, you probably can relate to this or know this, or people have told you this. If you get a script and you laugh out loud, like big laughs, like three times, or you go, there's something in here. That's all it usually takes is go, oh, no, no, there's something, there's something in here. And I remember reading and thinking, uh, you know, that makes me smile. And so that's funny. Or, oh, that could be really funny. Or, oh, that's a really good way to sit. Whatever I thought, I just knew there was something in it. And I liked what it was about. And in a lot of ways, it was ahead of its time. If you really break, I always say this about that movie. You should break that movie down and look at what it's talking about. Yep, the time was, you know, rough economically in, in America. You know, um, women going into the workplace, men staying at home. It became part of the nomenclature, Mr. Mom. You know, it was an expression that was used. I'm a Mr. Mom or I'm going to Mr. Mom it this weekend or whatever. So I knew it was, I knew it was good. So I met this guy, John Hughes. And we're sitting, and I really liked him. He talked about himself an awful lot. I didn't get much to say about it. It was John Wontabla. But I remember sitting there saying to him, I listened to what he was saying about the script, and I went, hey, have you thought about directing this? I think you should direct this. And he said, no, no, I don't want to direct. I'm writing these other things and blah, 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 blah. And eventually he became John Hughes, you know, iconic 80s guy, really, really good. Yeah, Yeah, Mr. Mom was fun. Fun. It wasn't exactly. It had to be adjusted. I, my 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 partner at the time, who was my manager and kind of producer, and we uh, and and we kind of brought in. I think we brought in another writer, or we started cha- writing some scenes because it kind of was going down a road that was not really going to work comedically. I could tell the director was a good guy. He came from advertising. He had a really good, nice visual sense. He didn't do a lot of comedy, so. I started to get a little nervous about that. So, you know, you, you know how it works. You get in, you say, let's talk about the scene. I'm not sure this works. I have an idea, like the chainsaw scene, you know, that yeah. happened at the last minute. You know, We have this rewatchables movie podcast we do where we break these down. We did Mr. Mom, I think like a year ago, a year and a half ago. It's pretty fascinating rewatch because as you yeah. said, like the whole Mr. Mom concept really drove the movie because it was new and that became part of the selling point of the movie where it's like no no so this guy he's not going to work and his wife's going to be the one who's like making making the bacon and yeah he's going to be home like trying to navigate the family and it it seems like crazy that this was a thing but in 1983 it was the thing it was it was a thing and now it's like you know i'm looking around here and there's the hipster dads everywhere, you know, right. sensitive guys. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, that's so interesting. Cause the idea was, you know, and I also, was, I was emasculated, you know, it was great. You know, I felt like I thought, uh, you know, I'm a, it was just such an interesting thing to do. It was totally clear to me though. The take on yeah. it was totally clear. I totally got what it was. You know, I said, yeah, this is really about this. And this is how this guy would feel. Because the chainsaw scene, what happened was I said, I knew that the scene should be would be funny if he felt totally panicked that here comes this guy going away on a business trip with my wife and he's suave and it's the great Martin Mall being really yeah. funny. And I go, man, this guy's panicked. He's got to be panicked. You know, this is he's just insecure right now. So the, the whole chainsaw thing kind of came together at the last minute. I said to the prop guy, we were running the scene and kind of getting ready. And I went, 
something off here. And I said, hey, go, I need like a, like a, like a tool belt or a thing. And, and in fact, I don't even think I did the, the overalls. I, I, I think I threw them on, said, yeah, overall. He goes right with a chainsaw and he goes, how about this? I go, great. He said, you want these? And he gave me the goggles. I said, oh man, perfect. And then, then it just became about that, you know? And then, yeah, you say, uh, I go into this thing where I go, uh, Martin goes in, he kind of looks at me like this going on this guy. And I go, uh, uh, you want a beer? Martin looks at me and goes, 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and I go, scotch? So he, Martin, I said this a thousand times, Martin came up with a line 220, 221, whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah, well, then, so it. then you do two more comedies. You do Johnny Dangerously, right. which was a thing back in the day. I don't, I never see it on cable. I don't know. Maybe it's owned by no, some but there weirdos are, there or something. Are, there are devout. Yeah, devout. Fans. It definitely was a thing. And then you did Gung Ho, which became, which was another one that tapped into like, that yeah. came out in 1986, but this whole narrative that America was having. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, with the, the American car companies were starting to lose yeah. Their luster in a lot of different ways. And this movie yeah. tapped into that. The narrative behind it, I think, is still pretty interesting. Yeah, you hit it on that. That's exactly right. The narrative behind it, what it's about, and a guy, and also he's heroic, character Hunter's heroic. He, he wants to help his town. He needs to pull it together and kind of understand both sides. But there's, in retrospect, in fact, Brian Grazer and I were talking about this. In retrospect, you kind of look back and go, wow, there's some. Yeah, there's know, some there's, tough stuff in there. Yeah. 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 But it was also, it was 1986. So yeah. you start realizing at this point, I have to, I have to shift. I have to start making dramas. I have to at least no, like no, show no, that side of me a little bit. I think I'll tell you exactly what I think happened. I've thought about this. I think that happened when there's a scene in night shift. And like I said, I just came at the role. I, granted, I really wanted to risk and I wanted to, I wanted to be funny, but I created a character that could be funny. Uh, the basics were there, and the writing, the basic writing was really good. Those guys were really good comedy writers. <clears throat> but there's a scene where Henry and I are talking. It's Christmas time. I think that we had a party, and we're talking about it, and I reveal something about my father. And I remember, like, the tone in the room changed for a minute, and I got really self-conscious. And I think Ronnie said, hold on a minute. And they, he took a break, and we there was some discussion or something. And I think he moved the camera, I think. And he shot at a different angle. And I think he went, whoa, I didn't know he was going to go there. you know. I, and, and I didn't do it. I did it because I thought that's probably what the guy would do. you know. And it was a dramatic, it's a dramatic moment in that movie. So, so I think- But that was the same when you were talking about buying the gravestone, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm under the tree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so we, so I think it kind of happened there, but nobody was really paying attention to that except maybe Ron Howard and some other people. And, uh, and so like that. Um, and then I got an opportunity to do clean and sober. And I thought, you know, I didn't say I need to prove myself as a dramatic actor so much as I just wanted to do this thing that I thought was really well written. I mean, I'm, I'm sure at some point I thought, you know, not for nothing, but you know, this will open things up. I was always looking to create, um, more opportunities than just get like stuck. I was very afraid of being stuck in something because I knew I'd get bored. You know? Well, it's funny, even though you were totally different actors, 
I think Tom Hanks was in a very similar situation in the 80s where he was also getting typecast with certain type of roles. And Robin Williams yeah. was too, where he was just, yeah. Robin Williams was supposed to be like the, he Crazy. comes on and, he, and yeah. he's a chainsaw on a hot tub. And that's right. that's who he is in a movie. Right. And then you could see him, he starts making like Moscow and the Hudson and right. World According to Garp. He's like trying to like move away from Mork and, yeah. you know, that high energy yeah. stuff. And but he, sometimes he, the audiences he, don't want it. No, because he had, they usually don't want it. It's usually a, a, a problem. It was easier for me, like Robin, imagine that. Imagine having to, you know, make that leap, you know. Now, on the other hand, sometimes people go, wow, he's really good just because you're serious. They go, you're really, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean really great. I mean, you know, if people talk about range, I would go, just because you do a comedy and do a drama, that, that has nothing to do with range. It's like, where's the range within the within all the stuff, you know? Right. Uh, but yeah, he, he, he really has work cut out for him. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it you can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Do you do you feel nostalgic at all for the that run of 80s and early 90s movies, like way before we moved into the superhero era, which you ironically started and these franchise movies and things like that, where you could just make these quirky movies that they might make it, they might not. Like the difference between, I don't know, Clean and Sober and Night Shift, right? And Clean and Sober, yeah. I think, did okay. But where you could just make these movies that now I don't even know really where you would make them. I guess unless Netflix or Amazon greenlit them, I don't even think the scripts happen. No. That's correct. You, 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 yeah, I am. Uh, uh, well, I never really in nostalgia in general, I never 
really understood until recently. Now I get it loud and clear. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, that, that time, those, I don't know why those times would ever come back. I mean, it's too bad because you're right to say, hey, this is pretty good. Let's just go make this and we'll, we'll, we'll get the money back or we might sell it right and make a ton of dough. You know, there's, I don't know if that happens anymore. You know, I don't, first of all, you know, Adam McKay was saying the other day, he said, comedy's really in a tricky spot right now. Uh, yeah. He couldn't quite put his finger on it. But, well, you know, look around, man. I just, you know, I'm a newspaper reader. And today I just had to set the times down. I went, I mean, I, I, I got too much to think about today. I got a lot to do. And every call, I went, that's bad. That's nervous making, you know, Oof, rough. And you would think, well, this would be a time to go be really funny somewhere. And t- it's on television. But when you think about it, so much of the great comedy came out of television anyway. You know, that that funny movie was one in about every 10, whereas on television, there was there were a lot of good comedy around if you were watching, you know, some of the uh, the Norman Lear stuff and the MTM stuff, and, you know, some of that stuff. You watch the Bob Newhart show. The Bob Newhart show now, just watch it. It's so good. It holds up so well, you know, just so solid. That'll really make you nostalgic when you sit back and watch that. Yeah, I feel that way about Cheers, even though it's super oh, dated. But perfect. the writing of it and the how patient they were with everything, and it wasn't just like set up, set up, joke, set up, set up, joke. They actually, you know, they tried yeah. to have real moments on that show. And I, perfect. Yeah. I, thinking about the comedy in 2021, I'm with you. Like, there's a weightiness to everything now. Yeah. Um, and also, I honestly think an inability for people to laugh at themselves sometimes and to be poked fun at, you know, and that's another thing. It's a very sensitive time, just in general. And and comedy is about pushing the envelope, making people uncomfortable, going yeah. into an area you probably shouldn't go into and, and people trusting that you're going to make the right decision with it. And now it's like nobody wants to even take a chance because they don't want to get canceled. Man, you're and I, 100%, 100% right. I, I don't know how and- it plays out, honestly. I don't either because, you know, you go, you're right. You, you go, you know, I think one reason is there's so much where everybody kind of is a star now. They walk around the streets thinking I'm kind of in my own movie because I'm, I'm TikToking and I'm Instagramming and I'm thinking, and I, I'm, I'm kind of somebody in a weird way. They kind of are, you know, you go, okay, well, and, and then, and then people start taking themselves seriously and, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's gotten tighter, like with everything you can do and say, that's why I think like curb your enthusiasm is so refreshing to people. You know, here's a, here's a guy who does kind of horrible, horrible right. things and says, and acts in a horrible way sometimes. It's so fun, so refreshing, you know? Well, it seems like certain people have been grandfathered in. Yeah, like, I think Kirby Enthusiasm is grandfather. And Charles Barkley feels like he just has an incredible amount of leeway for whatever reason. Uh, Howard true. Stern does. Like, there's some people that can still push it. Um, That's but a great if, expression, if, grandfathered in. Yeah, if you're right. not grandfathered in, you're in trouble. Yeah, I yeah. think it's, you look back at some of the stuff that was really funny in the 80s, and some of it's really inappropriate or, or cross lines that just wouldn't be crossed now. And other times it's funny just because they knew it was inappropriate as they were doing it. But there was yeah. a wink, wink that now I wonder, I wonder I, I, if it I exists. People, I wonder, I have, I've been wondering if it's going to reach a point where people go, you know what? Fuck it. I, we can't all be careful. We're just going to, we're just going to, you know, not go out and purposely 
be right. <laughs> inappropriate, but just say, I can't, I can't think like this all the time. Like I was watching the TNT last season, uh, the guys, that show is so good. And then you, you know, all those guys, uh, yeah. Charles is on. It's like, it's like they have nailed the combination, you know, they like, don't, don't touch that. Don't touch a thing. Just because sometimes it even gets like, not uncomfortable, but you know, you look at Shaq and Shaq will look down the thing and you go, whoa, see, I, it's kind of perfect, you know, like they shouldn't, shouldn't touch it. But one, day, one show, Charles says, uh, who's really funny, he says, uh, and he's not trying to be, he tells a story, he tells a story. They asked him where he got something, like, like a, a, a bracelet or something. They, said, they were just riffing and talking. And he goes, where did that thing come from? So, and he says, straight faced, he says, well, I was in a steam room with a man, and he gave the. <laughs> I saw that. Remember that? Kenny Smith stop. had a heart attack. Yes, <laughs> they could not stop laughing because it was hysterical. Because him, it was so great, and I thought that's really great because now you say it, people might say, "Well, what would be wrong with being in a steam?" You know, right, you know, right. It was just funny. It was just the image of him sitting in naked guys in a steam room. Right. You know, yeah, ball busting, ball busting has become a lot harder to pull off. You talked about the fame stuff and how everybody's famous. There was a really good article in the New Yorker a couple of weeks ago by Chris Hayes about this, about is one of the reasons society feels dysfunctional now is because fame is dysfunctional. And now there's more people than ever who are famous for varying degrees, whether they have 2,000 fans or 1,000 yeah. or... Yeah a million or a hundred thousand, everybody's dealing with the consequences of being a public figure. And maybe yeah. that's why it's so messed up right now. And maybe, and you know, I never, I mean, you know, without being sounding too pretentious, I always felt a little nervous. I felt really good at work, uh, on a stage. I never really, I still don't feel that great. First, a talking about myself, you know, you, I was raised very Catholic. So that's one reason, but also, yeah, I, it's like too much, you know, and I, 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 now everything's everywhere, you know, and, and, and then you go, well, you better be out there, dude, if you want to keep doing this. And I go, all right. And I try that. And then I really don't want to be out there. And, and I don't know, it's a really odd feeling, you know, if I was starting out now, I think now if I said, Hey, I think I'll go, go to Los Angeles and be this. I don't, I don't think I'd make it. I don't know what I'd do. I'd probably be a kid who would make things on his phone would be my guess. That's probably what I would do. Well, when you had know. that, when you had that first wave of fame, how did you deal with it? Were there repercussions? Like, did you cross the line? Were you partying too much? Like, what was, what? How were you dealing with that first wave in the early mid eighties? Oh, I was probably before I even moved to LA. I was probably partying too much, but never, but partying like <laughs> the, goof, the goofball that I was. You know, right. my buddies, you know, doing stuff you guys probably did when you were growing up, just yeah, doing stupid, silly stuff, you know, um, and having a lot of laughs, having a lot of fun. Not really, you know, it got confusing because now there's a lot of attention on you and got, probably got confusing for a while, but no, it didn't really, didn't, I really, you know, nothing changed, you know, I've never drug guy or, uh, so that wasn't, no, I mean, it, it, there's just more pressure all the time, you know, yeah. and that takes, a, that takes a long time to figure out, you know, I was young, I was really young, so that took a while to figure out. Well, the weirdest thing that happened to you, and it's, you know, it's been discussed ad nauseum, but when you take the Batman role yeah, and everybody's reaction in the moment, first of all, nobody understood what was going to happen with that Batman movie. They were right. reviving this series and the whole superhero infrastructure wasn't in place yet. But then they picked you and everybody was like, wait, what? <laughs> right. And this was right as we're heading into like, it's the premier magazine era. It's 
William Goldman writing for New York Magazine. And it's like people are really starting to care about the movie industry and who gets cast and what movies are busts and which movies become hits. And they there's this kind of bigger interest in it. Siskel and Ebert are, you know, hitting their peaks. And so yeah. you get cast at Batman. And it was, I think, one of the most stunning casting decisions ever. And then you crushed it. And in a weird way, you win. But for a year, it didn't seem like you won at all. It seemed like you were going to mess up the movie. Yeah, totally. Well, you really, I, I already knew you about this about you because and then we talked about it once. But that you really take that big view, like culturally what happens uh, in, you know, culturally what happens. Because you're, you're right. That, I never really thought about it like that. But that, I'm sure you're right. That is what was going on. There was a, an awareness Premier Magazine and movies were a thing. There was that whole thing where before that, I think people just made a movie and did a movie and went to a theater. But that, that's, right. that's what was happening. So there was a real there was a real awareness. And the thing with me that I I didn't get it. I mean, actually, when I think back about it, I kind of see probably now or I thought back about it a long time ago. I went, oh, oh yeah, I guess I could see some people who really care about this at all going, wait a minute, that doesn't fit with what I what I see or what I want. Weirdly, I guess I kind of get it. I just, I never thought about stuff like that. But, and I didn't know there were that many people who thought about it one way or another. I was right. kind of amazed that people are actually sitting about this, thinking about this. You know, shouldn't you be thinking about something else? So I, in retrospect, I went, oh yeah, if you're like a really insane fan person about this thing, that, that could be off-putting. And you're right, then he had to sit there and uh, I distinctly remember it was in the Wall Street Journal. I was flying back. I was, I was, we already started shooting. And I used to, I, you know, my son was young then. And if I had a minute off, I, I mean, I, I used to take the Concorde. And I didn't have a lot of dough then. The Concorde was really expensive, but really cool to fly. I met Prince on the Concorde one time. Wow. Yeah, yeah it was really cool. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, you take off, you could be back in New York and like, I don't know, four and a half hours or something like that, or less time. It kind of like it was, it was like a rocket ship. I'd fly home all the way to LA, spend two and a half days with my kid, and then fly back to London. And you know, I did that two or three times. I was so tired, and uh, I was on there sitting and reading, reading the Wall Street Journal. And I see, you know, how they do those. Uh, I don't know if they still do it, but it's it's kind of a drawing, you know, of a of a person. Not it's not a caricature. It's not. It's actually not a photograph. I can't explain it. Um, I'll find I'll find a paper someday and show you what I mean. But it was an image of me and I, you know, a likeness. And I thought, huh, I wonder why I'm in there. And then I read the article and it was about what what does it matter with these people? He can't be Batman. That was the thrust of that's that's where I heard about it. And I, I remember going, I didn't even I thought it was odd, weird. Right. That was odd. That it was and then and then I guess I I don't ever remember it making me too worried. But I must have thought about it. I must have said, oh, I'm starting to feel uncomfortable now. But I just kind of had to go do the gig. And you're right. Then, then people are waiting. And then, of course, it's like, oh, my God, this is the only way it could be done. There, there could be no other way. I mean, the risk taker was really me. But Tim, Tim and all of us, actually, Jack and everybody involved. Because if it was, gonna, if it was not going to work, it was going to be bad. Yeah, the moves yep. back in the day were either you do the no-name guy, like when Christopher Reeve, nobody really knew who he was yet, and he's right. Superman, or yeah. you get like just a famous star. Right. But they 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 kind of go the third way, which is like, no, no, we're actually, we're going to hire a real actor and yeah. somebody who you might not have expected, and he's going to kill it. 
It was, yeah. There was also like in the late 80s, and I don't really know the reason for this. And maybe there's a bunch of different smaller reasons. Maybe it's because these movies were on cable a lot. Um, we had VCRs at that point, so we could yeah. rewatch things over and over again. By like the late 80s, people felt real ownership over movies and franchises that they loved. So like Batman was this TV show that I loved as a kid and a lot of people loved as a kid. And we're kind of waiting for somebody to do the movie correctly. And then there was this weird ownership. Like we were invested in it. Like we had a vote and it's like, we don't have a vote. We're just going to see it. You know, same thing with like the 48 hours sequel or when like they, you know, years later when they brought the Star Wars franchise back or whatever, it's like, this is my movie. Don't screw this up. Right, and that's right. the first time I remember really feeling that with the Batman thing. It was a movie they hadn't even made yet and people were mad about it. And it was like this yeah. new era we moved into. Right, with, true. With fans like feeling like they could affect content yeah. that hadn't even been made. And now I think they do in a big way in that whole universe. I mean, a huge way, you know. That whole universe has become really interesting to me, actually. I, I, I never, I had zero interest in all that. I just find it interesting, like societally you know or or and how well they do it you know how well marvel does things and not bc and all that stuff you know i i, I kind of had no interest i did the movie and i watched it and went yeah it's fun i really liked it and i did another one and then i went i went whatever and i just that was kind of going on and then i looked at it and i went wow just on a just on a corporate level you know a cultural level it's amazing you know i mean well, I mean, it's amazing. And you're right. People, fans kind of do control. Like, I think they figure out, oh, here's what we got to give them because they really get it. And then then they they really figured out how to do it. People talk about it in ways that still kind of surprises me. I don't know anything about any of that, honestly. I'm, I'm, I'm playing catch up with those kind of movies. All oh, yeah. But I think the 1989 Batman is patient zero for everything. Yeah. I mean, 100%. literally everything. And... I don't think for people listening to this who are maybe, I don't know, under 40, who don't remember, it was the biggest thing in the world when it came out. It was like everybody had to go and it became the only thing anyone talked about for three weeks. And it was so successful and accomplished so many different things, like for giving Tim Burton the chance to direct that. Nobody would have, you know, giving a young creative filmmaker, being able to get Nicholson and like the kick-ass part and all this stuff that lays this blueprint but ultimately it completely changed movies and probably led yeah. to a lot of the stuff I hate about movies now. You know, in, yeah. in a weird way, the stuff that we love about movies was semi-sacrificed because that movie was so successful. And now that's like how they have to feel like half of the movies. Like like you made Birdman, what was that, 2014? Yeah. And one of, the, one of the reasons it was such a delight was it's like, wow, this is such a creative movie. Why don't they make movies like these? You yeah. know, and... I don't know. It's part of, I think it's just easier to try to make these movies that can be worldwide yeah. and part of a franchise. Yeah. And they keep, they keep the business afloat, I guess, I guess, you know, um, I, you know, that if you got that, then maybe you can slide another one or two, but you, like you said, it used to be, you know, there'd be, you know, 12, you know, of various t- styles or genres. Of yeah. Movies. Yeah. Were you, yeah. were you, did you have any you idea? Know, I, just, I just realized also what a risk it was for Tim, because you're right. People don't talk, I don't think, often enough about him doing 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 Batman, the thing we take so seriously, you know, but he he changed everything. He changed so much about the industry, you know, just you know, by his take on that, uh, what he 
what he saw visually. But you knew, yeah. though, because you had done Beetlejuice with them. So you knew. You knew what was going to happen. No, yeah, but but we didn't know. We didn't know if we could pull it off because it was enormous. It was an enormous undertaking. It's really difficult to make for him to make for all of us, but especially for him. Now that was that was very, very risky. That if that went down, that was going down in a big, big way. But I knew this was a really creative guy. This was a you know just were, you, were you prepared for the level of fame that came out of that movie and how gigantic that movie was? Because I don't I don't see how you would ever think that could happen. No. No, I, 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 that, yeah, that became, that was, that was big. That was, uh, gobs, I was a bit gobsmacked as the Brits say, probably. But, you know, fortunately I had been around doing some stuff. So it wasn't like, I, I you know, some kid from a, a farm in the middle of Indiana going, huh? you know, it's kind of like, yeah, whoa, okay. This is big. This isn't a, this is another level, you know, because, because it was, it was international. Yeah. You know, international. Yeah, yeah, any country. Yeah, I was yeah. watching the Val Kilmer documentary and he was talking about how much he hated wearing the suit and how yeah. awful the suit was and how cumbersome it was and what a nightmare yeah. it was. And then they tried to get him to a second one and he's like, I just don't want to wear the suit again. Was the suit yeah. that bad? Very bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah <everybody laughs> it sounded miserable. It. Yeah, it's miserable. Uh, it's pretty miserable. <laughs> but in a way, it's also fun. And it's also really... It worked for the, for how I, for the approach, you know, worked for the approach to the guy for me. I just, you know, it's a tired, somewhat tired actor expression, but I just used it. I said, okay, well, how do you, how do you use this? You know, right. use the thing, you know, uh, what's your inner discipline to, to kind of, you know, to grind it out every day, you know, to grind, you know, my back wasn't the same for me for, for a lot, a lot of years. Really? Yeah. And I also, I was playing hockey in a league, and that didn't help. That that position, I'm, and I'm, you know, I was never a great skater. I didn't learn to play hockey till I was like thirty-one or something, uh, and and uh, maybe later. Well, you made um, a hockey movie. Yeah, that's how I learned to play. That's how I got in the league, and I, and I was smart enough to. I, I felt so in love with it. It's the greatest game to play. I mean, I played everything when I was a kid. Hands down, man, if I could have played hockey when I was a kid, you know, we couldn't, we had nowhere to go. I wanted to, but my dad would have had to have taken us to a rink so far away. He was working two jobs. He was never going to do that. Plus, we could have never afforded the equipment. But, but, uh, that, that, that's, that's of all the games I ever played might, might be the most fun. And I was never really that good. So I had to learn for the movie. And then I, then I just started playing and joined the league. <laughs> I was smart enough the first year to, to join a full contact league. Oh my God. Which was totally stupid. First of all, I wasn't as good as any of the other guys. And then I got smacked around. And then the next year we changed, they changed it to like, you couldn't hit in the open ice or something, or you couldn't hit a, you know, minimal contact. And it just kept getting a little less violent. It was fun though. Did you, did you see when they, I mean, they, they've kept making Batman movies over and over again. Yeah. Did you see the ones that Nolan made or were you just out? You're like, I'm out on the franchise I was into. I'm not going to watch. Or did you actually watch them? No. And, and and there's, I swear to God, there's no, I almost hesitate to even talk about this because I think people like may have interpreted it as, well, he, he was angry. I had no feeling about one way or another. I just, it's not the kind of movie I would probably run to see. I mean, that's right. a little weird because I started with Tim Burton and all those guys. You would think I'd be curious enough. Uh, I've never seen, I, uh, 
The only thing I could say is the, th- the one I turned down and said, I, I can't do this. That I know would have been painful because, you know, that kind of, you went, oh man, you know, my opinion, you just took something, you know, something that he created and, you know, and, and you decided to go there. That, I, that, that would have been, I wouldn't have been crazy about watching that. So I may have, I may have like walked through the living room and went, wow and i couldn't watch it besides that the others i just and, and i would love I, I i did watch a little bit of one because christian bale's like a monster i mean it's unbelievable and and chris nolan is so talented i think i watched a little bit of that and i was i thought wow it's so different technically what they do and hmm. uh if, you know that's impressive but but i couldn't tell you what they're about really well, I mean, there's been a lot written about why you turned down that third Batman movie, but yeah. nobody talks about it. Was, it, it no, it was really, <laughs> it was really because Bonds, Bonds had left the Pirates. You were an emotional tailspin. That's the, exactly. the Pirates That's had completely exactly. fallen apart. You never yes. got over the hump, and yeah. I don't think people realize the ramifications it had on your life in the mid nineties. You get it. You get it. <laughs> it took me a what? lot of years to recover. What do you, when you go back, first of all, nobody's made the perfect documentary of the early 90s pirates. By the way, here's, here's a Barry Bond story. Okay. You're going to find, you, well, you probably already are because of what you, you do. You're going to s- sit around one day and somebody's going to be talking to you and you're going to start telling a story about something. And then it's going to hit you. You're going to go, wow, I'm a guy who actually has stories. Like, you know, you sit around and you go, man, this guy's got so many great stories. So, like, they'll say to you, Hey, what's so and so like? You know, oh man, this guy has so many stories. And then you go, wait, I think I'm one of those guys. Also, <laughs> when did you know this happen? <laughs> yeah. So I called Bonds one day because I knew him a little bit. You know, I knew Bobby Bonilla, who's such a great guy, and and you know, they, Bonds was amazing. Uh, I mean, my theory on him was he went, he looked at everything. You know, these guys blown up, you know, hitting 150 home runs, you know, like two seasons and stuff, and he's going. Not only am I a better athlete than these guys, I said, I can, I just can't, I can't, I can't keep up with that. If, if, you know, how am I going to keep up with that? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, what doing what we're, I'm not going to say a lot. And he probably, he probably said, okay, let's level the playing field. Right. And, and see what happens, you know. Now, now, you know, he also had, you know, some attitude problems when he was in the bird that weren't, weren't too cool and everything, but he was a young guy. So one day I call him. And he, and, uh, cause I forget, I think I had him come to a premiere or something, uh, in Pittsburgh. I did. And, you know, he was a good guy and everything. So I called him back to talk to him about something. And it's like November and they had gone. So they were probably, that might've been a playoff year. I'm trying to think what year it was. So, you know, you're playing up in October, maybe, maybe not quite, maybe September, whatever. And it's like, you know, a couple months later at the most, and his wife says, uh, wait, I'll go get him. And he goes, and he's kind of out of breath. I go, hey, man, how you doing? We're talking. I go, what are you up to? He goes, I was, I was just working out. <laughs> Me like a dummy. I go, uh, really? Why? What are you doing? I'm thinking he's, he's getting ready for something. And there's a pause. And then he says, what do you mean? I go, well, I mean, why are you working out? He goes, I'm a professional baseball player. <laughs> you know? So whatever he was doing, maybe he was doing, maybe he wasn't doing, but he was doing, he was also on it, training, yeah. working on it, you know? Yeah. Like LeBron yeah. and the, all the greats. That's 365 Absolutely, days man. a year. 100%, man. 100%. Like, you know, 
And so the coolest thing this guy Ryan Reynolds did for the uh, for this kid for the Pirates was really good. They showed him where he stayed after one day, and all he was working on was like this to feel to center, to center how to, how to, how to feel. The guy was working with him went you know to to pick up the ball properly. You know this cross step kind of thing. He was doing it over and over and over again. And they talked about he'll stay and like work longer and take extra BP and stuff like that. Work on little things. Those are the guys. Those are the guys. You know, those are the guys that get really good, if not great. Yeah, I tell my kids that because both of my kids play sports. It's like you hit a level where everybody is as good as you, and the yeah. ones that go the extra level are the ones that are just yeah, they're obsessed with it. They're doing it every day. Absolutely. And then there's of course guys who just have some sort of God-given thing. That right, yeah, you hit Bo, ja- Bo Jackson shows up, but that's it. Yeah, um, I'm great with Bo Jackson, God. I mean, we. I was talking to, uh, I had a couple friends over yesterday and we were talking about if you could change the course of somebody's career and just remove the injury they had, who would be your number one draft pick? And we all instinctively said Bo Jackson. Really? Yeah. Because people don't he, he he talk about what he did enough because there were guys who played two two sports, which is really impressive. But he was really good at both sports. Oh, yeah. For a long time. We did a 30 for 30 about him. And we didn't even really have... It was one of the only ones where we didn't even really care what the structure was. It was just like, let's just make sure we get a Bo Jackson interview and just show some highlights. This thing's going to work. Yeah. There's no way this could fail with the Bo Jackson highlights and this whole generation of people who hadn't really seen it yet. And it it was what it was. It was Bo Jackson. Oh, man. There you go. Wasn't he? Wasn't he the first one to to, to break his bat over? Oh over yeah, his leg? he was the first one to climb yeah. the wall. All that stuff. If you yeah. saw if you saw Sid Bream, would you like? Would you punch him? Like, what would happen? Would you knee, knee him in the balls? It wasn't Sid. It, it wasn't Sid. It was uh, it was uh, Francesco Cabrera, I think. Uh, well, he had the hit, but Sid had Sid had the make. slide. The slowest guy in the league somehow scored <laughs> from second. I, I know. Just thought, because, you know, obviously I'm a Red Sox fan and people know about our iconic losses. And there's been, yeah. you know, the Cleveland has their thing and Buffalo, Minnesota. That that Pittsburgh stretch where they can't get over the hump and then that Braves game, which is one of the great games ever. ever. And then the way they lost. And who is who is it? Van Slyke is just yeah. slumped in center field for like 10 minutes. And oh. I, that game, that was one of the most dramatic games of my life. Ever, ever, and if that throw is just off, like you know, like like four or five feet the other way, he probably get he probably gets thrown out. I was that was so upsetting. So Sean my, was a, was still young, and I was coaching on baseball and stuff, and he, you know, we were really into baseball and watching everything. He was so heartbroken. Years and years and years go by, maybe like five years ago, six years, no longer, maybe seven, eight years ago. We're talking about baseball or something's going on, and he chipped. he's got a very good sense of the owner. And he says, Dad, when do you think we can <laughs> what was the, the the adjective? When do when do you think we can give up this this not not immature, uh, this kind of fruitless un- yeah, this fruitless hatred of the Atlanta Braves and like this, like, never, never, <laughs> ever, never. Here's another great story. I was making a movie I was making a movie in Atlanta. Me and oh, John no. Yeah. John Hancock's a uh, uh, kind of a baseball fan, director. We're making a, making a, a founder. Yeah, good one. So I go, hey, let's go, let's go see the Pirates. Uh, uh, Macacho is playing. He's a really good, really good guy. Um, and uh, I said, let's go, let's go, let's go watch a Braves game. And 
I'm still hating them inside. And uh, the tomahawk chop, tomahawk <laughs> chop, like gives him gives you visceral reactions. Yes. <laughs> Get the shakes. Sweat. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, so uh, like Albert Brooks and broadcast news. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, I go. We got to go through the Braves organization. He goes, it's down there at their stadium. I go, all right, whatever. You know. And I'm thinking, I'm going to hate all these people. <laughs> and, and we show. You start to call and say, well, meet us here and set up. They were the nicest people. They are the classiest, nicest people in the world. They did everything just right. They were, they were made it easy, were really friendly, weren't like cloying, like, you know, like too much. Just said, Jim, go here, have a nice time and meet this guy and great seeds and stuff like that. I was so disappointed. Yeah, it's almost <laughs> like you wish you had a gun. So are you yeah. are you pirates and then Steelers, Penguins, or like are Pirates like first, or is it everybody? It's everybody, but it, it kind of like romantically has to be always be the Pirates, just because you know that's how it all started with me. But like, as a little kid, so you, know, you must have had a chance to buy in, right, and be minority owner, some of that stuff. That's a whole other conversation I'd like to have. You know, I never had that, never had that chance. Like a token, they never thing. asked you. No, really, that's such yeah. a mistake. Yeah. You could have Here's been like the, the face of the franchise. Here's the, well, yeah. Well, maybe that wouldn't be so good. <laughs> maybe that's but, not good for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I, I always said, if that ever happened, I would quit, quit everything for a year. So I ain't doing anything but that. Only that. Only that. 24-7. That's all I want to do. But I got to have some kind of say. Right. Can't well, be a token. Like, hey, he shows up in there. Well, you, you could have like that A-Rod somehow is involved with the Timberwolves ownership. I don't think yeah. he put up a ton of money. Yeah. But he's in is there he, and he's like the face of it. That I don't know why that couldn't yeah. have happened for yeah, you. But do you think they do you think they call him and say, hey, there's this kid at, the, you know, uh, Florida State International Ag House, College of Agriculture. Right. What do you think? Or do you think you go, I don't know, I'm just going to show up for the, the dinner. You know, My, you know. My, but what My, if you did it, if you did it, wouldn't you want to go? Ah, man, I'm, I want to go. I want to go to the Dominican Republic. I want. I want to find something. Wouldn't you? Well, from what I know about this stuff, you don't really want to be. They call it the minority owner. You don't want to be the minority owner unless you have some sort of pull, and either yeah. that pull can be they structured it so that you have like real say, or the owner that has the say is somebody that you're really tight with. Otherwise, yeah. you just basically bought the most expensive season tickets of all time. Right, right, exactly. That's the trick. I was with you know Phil Lind, this guy Phil Lind, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah, he's a great guy, great guy, and a great story. Big, big, big fisherman, big Atlantic salmon fisherman, trout fisherman. Uh, but didn't he was ta- I was talking to him about how all that works and you know what he thinks they're worth and et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's and it's a bunch of rich guys who are all used to being in charge on their own yeah. of things. And now yeah. they have to deal with all these other rich guys. I thought the pirates had some ownership stuff though over the years. Feels like yeah, you I don't know. Feels like you could have like some opportunities. It feels like you put it I still think you could do it. I still think there's time. This yeah, could be this could be uh this could be a fun decade. It's it's just a business where you go, you you you're either in or you're out. And I'm I don't I don't like that. I like the small market thing. Yeah. I like when teams do it, but you're good for a year, right? You maybe get two seasons out of that. Then you got to restructure and sort of. So at some point, somebody's got to pay somebody. 
Yeah. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta say how much, how much. Okay. And then you gotta pay that pitcher or that catcher or whomever. Right. You just gotta pay somebody. Yeah. Tampa, Tampa's figured out the best. They, yes. they just over and over again, they're stockpiling, stockpiling. And then the perfect time to trade the guy, they always like Blake Snell last year. It's like, Blake, yeah. thanks for everything. We'll see you later. <laughs> we're sending you off for more young guys. That then right. we're going to trade five years from now. Are you following the Steelers or no? The Roethlisberger thing's rough. This is why your uh, your people wanted this to run a week from now. And I was like, no, it's got to be, we got to run it on Tuesday's pod. And I got to get Keaton's thoughts on the Steelers. This Roethlisberger thing, great career, two Super Bowls, but this is now, this is now rough All to right. watch. It's rough. Right. It's painful. It's painful. I couldn't even watch Sunday. I don't know why everybody was talking about like that. That oh, this could be. I went. It's Aaron Rodgers. It's a, and it's a good team. I mean, I, I don't see how you think this anything's going to. I couldn't watch. Literally, couldn't watch. I couldn't take it. I was. I also had to be on an airplane at a certain point. But I thought I kind of don't want to. My brothers are texting me constantly. You know, saying talking about specifics. I'm going. I don't even know what you're talking about. I, I can't talk about it. It's you know, it's too bad. It's such a great organization. Tomlin's great. You know, well, I think I mean, that's why people are optimistic because Tomlin's been such a great coach yeah. that every time it seems like it's over or they've hit, you know, up, this is, this is, and then all of a sudden they'll rally and they'll upset somebody because of him. Yeah. But Roethlisberger now, it's just, he, it's, yeah. he can't move. Like he's a statue. No. Yeah. I don't, I don't quite understand all that whole thing. We could talk privately about what, what that's all about. Like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know what. I mean, you know, well, it's loyalty. I think it's loyalty to all the stuff he's done to the franchise. It's hundred percent loyalty, which is really, really admirable and 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 good. But but you go, yeah, but it's somewhere. And in fairness, man, remember at the beginning he hit a hole on the ball and he could get hit a lot harder. Just because he's big doesn't mean he doesn't hasn't been beat up. You know, he has been. Uh, But there's a lot. There's a lot that I don't understand. Like a lot that I don't understand. I I just don't get it. Uh, Well, he's almost like a he's almost like a tight end. Where yeah, he, that, he was so big and strong, he was just taking these hits where he'd have these two guys dragging him yeah. 15 times a game, and he was yeah. so strong he could fend him off. But at some yes. point, the hits start adding up. You know, you're like a car. To. Yeah, it has to. Exactly. But I mean, I don't get the whole what the whole mentality is, you know, the, or, the organization. Not just about him, but I'm not sure what, what the thinking is. I worry, I'm saying this is it, I worry about these young guys who came and it's a storied franchise. I worried they're going, wait a minute, this is, you know, what are we doing? We thought, we thought there was a thing here, you know? Um, but, you know, there's so many good teams now. I mean, there's some like, really good teams. Just so so you, moved to LA and the, you moved to LA right as they were in the Super Bowl run. Yeah. They were like four and five. Yeah. When so, I was growing up, it was Steelers, Cowboys. That's it. That's just who, yeah. won, the, who won the Super Bowl every year. And then yeah. I was in Boston and all the kids were like, the kids that weren't the Patriot fans were Steelers or Cowboys because they're front runners. And was like, oh, I, right. I know I don't like that person. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and they had all these front runner fans all spread around the country, the Steelers right. or Dallas. But then the real Pittsburgh fans, yeah, you know, you always know. You can tell. You don't have the accent, though. No, no. You know, you know, I, I never oddly, I never really had one. I don't know. What, I mean, that's probably not true. Maybe when I was young, young, I had a little bit of one. I never consciously said, I never lose that accent. I just don't. I just don't know what what happened there. But you know, a- accents and dialogues—they're just they're dialects. They're disappearing. Like even in even in Boston, you know, and and as you know, you know, Boston can change from from you know a few blocks away. You can sound different. Like you know, in, 
in this movie worth and you know ken feinberg's from brockton you know oh nice he doesn't, he doesn't speak like like robbie robinson does in fact robbie the guy the guy from spotlight i played the they sometimes robbie doesn't even have a have an accent and he told me he said it depends on where i am if i walk in and i'm interviewing some guy and he's you know a fireman down in you know revere or something like or lynn you know or something like that he says oh then i start to i start to then i talk like this not not an affectation you just can't help it. you know you know Spotlight but is one of the. But a lot of cities they don't have them. If you notice anymore, you know, if you, you know, because a lot of the transplants. Yeah, it's it, but it's still it. if you go to the dark, the deeper parts of the city, the yeah. extended, the suburbs, and the extended yeah. stuff. That's it. We we. I mean, there's a million movies we could have talked about. Spotlight, I think, is one of the best movies of the past ten years. And Thanks. Yeah, I know you're good. obviously proud of that one. Listen, yeah. as as a forty year fan of yours, I'm I'm so glad you're still cranking and doing good content. We, you had forty years of movies we could have talked about. Yeah, That's yeah. why I wanted to concentrate on one decade. But um, yeah, I know you'll come back at some point. After this was do, fun. You had a good time. Yes, after I do forty more. I'm glad I'm I'm glad you're still doing good work though. It's really been Thanks. fun to watch. So you have Dope Thanks. Sick that's on Hulu, right? And then uh, really Worth good. is already on Netflix. Yeah. So there you go. All right, it was good to see you. I'm glad we finally Thanks. did this. Thanks.